0: Today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Esther Maria Tejeda, Chief Marketing Officer of Anywhere Real Estate, a global leader in residential real estate whose portfolio of brands includes Sotheby's International Realty, Corcoran, Caldwell Banker, Century 21, Better Homes and Gardens, and ERA. I am Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. EM, thank you so much for joining me today, and let's talk Limbic Sparks.
1: Well, hi, Kevin, and thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited about this conversation.
0: I am so thrilled that we're doing this. How are you today?
1: I am doing fabulously. Um, We have, obviously, a lot to chat about, a lot of fun stuff going on in the world of marketing, so, you know, can't complain.
0: Excellent. Well, we've had the wonderful chance to get to know each other and work together for a little while now. And I am constantly amazed by all that you juggle in your work and personal life. What motivates you and fuels your energy?
1: Oh, geez, that's a big question. Um, Well, uh, I would say first and foremost, I have a five-year-old daughter uh, who is my only child, my one and only, and she is a huge, uh, motivator and inspiring force in my life. Um, that drives me to want to continue to do the things that I, that I do and to be better uh, than I am and to role model best behaviors and all of that to ensure, uh, her future and, and what the world will look like for her when she's, you know, an adult and in the workforce, number one, um, I think that's actually number one, number two, and number three of the things that, that keep me, uh, that keep me motivated.
0: It's so wonderful putting her first like that. That is just amazing. I, <laughs> well, know the-
1: I hope when she grows up, she <laughs> is, uh, grateful and <laughs> looks back on this podcast and says, thank you, mom. <laughs> like,
0: oh, that's why she works so hard <laughs> yeah, Exactly <laughs> for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, I know that throughout all that, you also set very high standards for yourself and for the people who you surround yourself with. What are the most important values that you appreciate in the people who you stay close with?
1: Oh, 101% honesty, uh, loyalty, and realness. And I'm choosing to say realness and not authenticity, because authenticity i think is so overused and misunderstood but it is uh what i'm really getting at is you know that's why i'm saying realness it's the um the vulnerability and the truth telling of it all and you know really uh being willing and able to expose Your real self, your real agenda, your real motivations, your real thought processes. These are the things that I value the most in others.
0: Can you describe yourself, but do so by naming a few brands that collectively paint a picture of what you're all about?
1: Oh my goodness. I love this question. So first and foremost, Diet Coke. And if anyone knows me, they know how much I drink diet soda, it is. I don't drink coffee, um, so this is where I get my caffeine boost, and it's definitely an addiction. I worked in the um, in the soda business for some years, actually at the competitor with Pepsi, and I was a Diet Pepsi drinker for all of those years. And now I am mostly Diet Coke, but I definitely go back and forth on that number one brand uh, that I uh, I think I'm associated with that brand generally speaking, because I always have you know a soda in my hand. Um, second brand would definitely be Chanel. I think also, if you know me, I am a collector of vintage, uh, Chanel bags, bags in general, but specifically Chanel bags. I love them. I love the art of it. I don't wear most of them. I just collect them. It it is, it is an art thing for me. So I love the art of it. I love, Um, just the story behind some of the bags. I love the collection. So that is number two. And I would say number three is Amazon. If you are to drive past my house at any point, you will see almost 100% of the time some kind of Amazon package at my doorstep. And I think that has to do with the simplicity, the immediacy um the you know just get it done aspect of of amazon i need i need this thing i need it now amazon will get it to me and i can move on with uh with what i need to use it for right so the the, that sense of like solving problems quickly and solving problems easily and it's a weird combination of brands but all together, it's like, I love the art and the beauty of things. I I love the emotion that brands like Chanel bring out Mm -hmm. in, in others. They, those are brands that have done a fabulous job of building that loyalty and that connection cult following, if you will. And the diet Coke is all about, it's a lifestyle choice, right? Like always on the go, always drinking diet Coke, you know, Uh, so I think, you know, those, that is the best portfolio of brands that I can possibly use to describe myself.
0: That is so cool. And I love the way you wrapped it up. You summed them up. Um, I was looking out the window the other day and I saw an Amazon truck pull up and I was like, I didn't order anything, but maybe they're just delivering something I know I they know I need. I I hope it's for me.
1: <laughs>
0: no, Amazon is here, right? I don't even have an Wouldn't order. Wouldn't that place. be amazing? <laughs> they just show up with things. That would just be so great.
1: Um, I'd like
0: to know more about your career path. You've held corporate comms and marketing leadership roles at Diageo, Univision, and Entercom, Sound Exchange, and now at Anywhere and a few other places. What's been a common thread, or or something that's pulled you from one role to the next throughout your career?
1: Two things. One is the building of culture. So I started out my career. On lifestyle brands, um, Diageo. You mentioned I was on the agency side working on Pernod Ricard brands in the alcohol beverage space, PepsiCo, which is a huge uh, culture maker. Um, so this uh, this you know high value role that for me is high value of like creating things that you're putting out into the world that are either reflecting or changing or impacting culture and how how we, you know, interact in the world and how we experience art and human beings and music and sports. So that's number one. The other thing that I've really been focusing on the past half of my career, I would say is transformation. So I am a, at my core, I am a transformation and change agent. So I go to organizations that are either building something new that has never before existed or fixing something that is on life support and needs to be resuscitated and completely reimagined or some combination of those things. Uh, I'm, I'm an architect in many ways of strategy and brand and consumer experience. And I think that's what ties together the culture piece and the transformation piece. Uh, and and that is precisely the kind of work that I'm still doing now at Anywhere in the real estate business. Uh, so it is in many ways full circle. Yeah.
0: And we're going to talk a lot about uh, the work at Anywhere and, and some things related to your current role. But before we go there, I just wanted to ask you, I also know that you've done a lot of work as a speaker and you're on boards and overall, um, your involvement with diversity, equity, and inclusion and women in business as an advocate. Can you share a bit about your motivation in those areas?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I'm Latina. So um, I have grown up in a business landscape that has not always been welcoming to women or people of color. I have you know, historically been one, one of or the only person of color or woman in a room, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I have a five year old now. And so there's just this uh deeper sense of urgency around solving for that and making sure that the environment that she's inheriting when she, you know, grows up, goes to college, goes on to the workforce is different and better than the one I inherited from the generation before us. And so for her and for really the entire next wave of young people, young talent that are coming into into the business landscape, it is incredibly important to me that we are working together, working smartly and working collaboratively to to address in a very real way, one, the DEI issues from, from that employee experience, retention, growth and career perspective. But also all of the missed opportunities in terms of business and revenue that are left on the table when organizations don't understand how to market to, how to sell to, or how to engage with communities of color and women. Um, It's it's a problem from both both ends. And it's something that is, again, deeply, deeply personal and very much um, critical Uh, to, to me, the work that I'm in and the person that I am.
0: Yeah. And I've seen that come through in all of our discussions over the period of time that we've known each other. So it's, it's, um, it's incredible how you champion these such important causes for the future of the workforce.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, I'm just going to say this before we move on from this topic in housing specifically, I just came from, hearing quite a few uh speakers on this topic, but in housing specifically, the growth market is Latinos. So if you know in our industry in the industry that I'm in right now, if we are not embracing that as an opportunity and understanding the changing demographics and the changing face of America in the next generation in the next 10 years, There's just a lot of money that's going to be left out on the table, not to mention just the cultural um, the cultural toll that we will pay as a society for not if we do not embrace and really understand the value of that diversity and the um, the benefit of that diversity for on so many levels and for so many different reasons. so
0: and it, and it goes so much deeper than just a cohort of Latinas and Latinos. Like you you tell a story that I've heard you speak at a conference, which I absolutely uh, I love. you you talk about um, I call it your three Latina women's story and it includes it includes you. it includes um, one of your key team members, Maraima, and it includes uh, my partner and our work together, Ruth Gaviria and you put the three faces up on the screen and you're all wearing dark glasses and then you tell a story from a marketer's perspective. I'd love to hear that.
1: That's so funny that you're mentioning that, but yeah, so here's an example of three people who are all women, who are all Latinas, who are all in marketing, who are all in real estate, even more specifically, who all have dark brown hair, And have dark glasses, are college educated and beyond. So, by all accounts, if we were to be using, you know, traditional marketing segmentation or consumer insights tools to understand that cohort, we would say these are the same people. These three people are the same persona. They like the same things. We should treat this group of women in the same way, serve them the same creative, offer them the same products and services. Uh, they are at their core, the same profile. And the reality of it is that we are so incre- despite the things that I mentioned, and despite the ethnic and gender commonality, educational commonality, household income, fields of work, I mean, all the things that we have in common, we could not be more different in terms of how we operate, how we see the world, what we're interested in, what we buy, where we spend our money, what we consume, what we care about, what we value, and what we think about, right? And so it just goes to show, again, the that in every sense, not just Latinas, but people in every sense are extremely diverse And so we have to do a much better job of understanding and um, embracing that granular level of diversity that exists even within groups that we would have previously thought are similar or monolithic. They are not. There is no singular persona within these demographics. There's no way to look at these folks just based on demographics. That's just not the way human beings operate.
0: Absolutely not. And I love, love that story. Thank you for for sharing it. I want to come back to uh, your role. So you started at Anywhere as Enterprise Chief Marketing Officer. Can you briefly describe the priorities and what inspired you about this role when you took it on? Oh, well,
1: that's an interesting story. So to most people, uh, when they look at the brands and businesses that I have worked on, which have been largely lifestyle, media and entertainment, making this choice to transition into real estate may have seemed a little odd. But the reality is that, again, I'm a transformation strategist. And so the business of real estate is ripe for transformation and actually is being, as we I think we all know, heavily disrupted, as most industries are, by digital and tech innovation, right? And so What better place to do transformation work than in this very critical industry of housing? The other piece that was kind of tugged more at my heartstrings about this role is that I'm, you know, if we are to be successful, and I believe we will be in the business of transforming the housing uh, process from what is i consider to be a cumbersome complex maybe not that straightforward process that is um, based on all accounts uh, confusing anxiety producing and scary for the average buyer and seller if we are to be successful in simplifying that process making home ownership or the process of transacting on a home more more simple, simpler for people, easier to understand, more transparent and more efficient, then we are effectively removing the gates around home ownership, which means we're making it more approachable and more of a realistic possibility for more Americans across the country. And so there are so many implications of that in terms of like the the um, building of generational wealth, the building of family wealth and communities that have historically not participated in housing because they thought they couldn't, they didn't really know how to approach it, et cetera. And so there's this entire element that ties back somewhat to what we were talking about earlier around the value and my commitment to DEI of this particular work. So it's it's sort of a combination of here is a amazing organization with some of the leading brands In residential real estate, attempting to do to take on some significant changes that are that would affect the industry and the way people approach home ownership, housing, and the buying and selling process that has the potential of just upending the way we think about things and do things today and putting keys to houses in the hands of families that would have never before had a key to a house. So it is, um, it is an exciting, and I think also from my perspective, an inspiring challenge. And it is the reason that I made the change and the decision to, to make this transition into real estate after having spent so many years more on the media and culture and music side of, of the business.
0: In our work together, we've talked a lot about consumer insights, and we've talked a lot about the behavioral science revolution that's currently underway. Can you share what that means to you and what CMOs need to know more about when it comes to consumer insights today? I love this topic, Kevin. So I don't think it's a secret
1: to anybody that uh, marketing has always tried to be emotionally driven, right? Right um for as long as i can remember ads have certainly in my generation ads have really focused on you know being the tearjerker or um you know driving some kind of feeling in 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 the consumer in the in the person what we have not been doing though is really understanding what those emotional profiles of our consumers are i think we still operate from the perspective, largely, not everyone, but largely um, from the point of view that human behaviors are rational. And so we want to uh, understand and segment people based on rational behaviors, their rationally vocalized opinions through focus groups. um, The behaviors that we see them taking in our own funnels Uh, the behaviors that we see them taking on through research, et cetera. But what we are not really understanding or embracing in a truly, in a very real and operational way is that the behaviors that we are seeing are the tip of the iceberg. So if you imagine an iceberg where, you know, just the very tip is above the water, that's the behavior, but everything that is happening below that water or that iceberg, you can't see, but it is very much creating that tip, right? And so all of the behaviors that we are studying, that we are profiling, that we are segmenting, that we are um, cre- using to create our personas, aren't really getting at the bottom of the iceberg, which is the emotional drivers that are actually causing that person to think the thing that they think, to like the thing that they like, to react the way that they react to the thing that they react to. And those are emotions that are by and large, and this is psychology, right? Those are emotions that are by and large subconscious. The person themselves is probably not even aware of those emotional feelings, but it is literally their DNA and is changing and shaping the way that they are experiencing the world and therefore the way that they are reacting to the world. And so we have been really focused as marketers on measuring the what of people, what they do, what they are, but we have to now start asking ourselves, why? Why are they doing that? Why do they behave this way? As close as we can get to that understanding that and doing segmentation work and profile work based on that layer of subconscious emotional understanding, then that is how much closer we'll be to truly getting our consumers, truly understanding who they are and therefore being able to create marketing that actually appeals to people on levels that they don't even understand, right? And so, and that that is what is possible with neuroscience that is why I love so much some of the work that we're doing together, um, because it is the new frontier for research. It used to be demographics. Then we started talking about psychographics. It's time that we start talking about emographics. What is the emotional profile of our consumers? That's the thing that is going to unlock that relationship that we're all trying to build, um, regardless of industry, regardless of what is our product, regardless of what is our business.
0: I'm curious, um, in the work that we've done with behavioral science research, we've done some studies working with Protobrand and bringing in some really cool methodologies that most people in your organization have never experienced before. What has been most surprising and how has it changed the conversation?
1: I think it's starting from the foundational hypothesis that housing is emotional right? Um, And surprisingly, financial services is also emotional. And these are two industries, you know, money and housing that we tend to think about as being super rational. Like, you know, the choice of the, the house that you buy is really about the money and what you can afford and the investment that you're making and the calculation of the down payment and the monthly payment, et cetera. But it's largely not. And we see people making emotionally based decisions on housing um, all of the time, but we've never really bridged, I think, as an industry, that gap to understand and accept that, by and large, the behavior is emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. The reason comes uh, the, the, the 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 there's post rationalization of the thing that the person wants to do, right? I love this house. I have fallen in love with this house. I just knew the minute I walked in that this was the perfect house to raise my family. I will now figure out how I'm gonna rationalize that choice because the house is out of my budget or the house is five miles away from my, you know, where I said I wanna live. So we see that all of the time anecdotally. And so what, What neuroscience and um, emographic work is allowing us to do is to understand at that level, what are those emotional drivers and what is that emotional response that is happening when someone walks into a house and says, this is the one, it's a magical moment. There's something that's happening deep inside that person. It's not happening in their brain. It's happening in their heart. Um, And so with this work, we're getting closer to understanding that heart reaction, that heart set, so that we can marry that intelligence with the mindset that we already know and study very well. And that combination of the mindset and the heart set equals a much more comprehensive perspective of that person, and it allows us to be much more precise in how we market to them, target them, personalize them, create the experiences that will actually connect with them and drive the behaviors that we want to drive.
0: So with all of this in mind, why do you think that some brand leaders are still neglecting the power of emotion and emotional insights in their approaches to growing their business? What's holding them back?
1: Yeah, look, I think we all have, as marketers, tremendous amount of pressure now with this, this ongoing conversation around performance marketing and et cetera to um, have all of our work in deeply quantifiable, you know, in a very quantifiable way. Uh, a lot of marketing has been reduced to sales enablement. We're we're more closely connected than ever to um, having to drive revenue, improve that return on investment as it pertains to the bottom line and what 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 are we generating for the business? And I think um, because those pressures are so high, and we also know we have that scary number in the back of our head that the tenure for CMOs is the shortest of any other C suite leader. The combination of all of those things makes um, an environment where a lot of folks are focusing on the short term. How do I drive immediate business value? How do I unlock leads? How do I drive SKUs off shelves if I'm in if I'm in CPG to try to close more deals and drive more business because I have to prove the revenue generating value of marketing and so when we are so deeply caught up in that short-term thinking it is really hard to focus on the long game and the reality of this is that the long game feeds the short game because the tactical things that a lot of us are doing and we're we are all it's all part of new marketing right this is marketing 20 version 20 2023 um without having that level of precision and understanding of consumers at that deep subconscious level, we're just not able to create the kind of campaigns, the kind of creative, the kind of advertising, the kind of messaging call to actions that we need to create in order to get the results that we have to deliver. So in a lot of ways, we have to be able and willing to take that step back to do the foundational work, to set up the insights, to really understand the customer before we start thinking about our funnel and before we we start thinking about um, the performance metrics and the growth marketing tactics, because that is what that is. And it has to be rooted in a strategic understanding of who our people are. Uh, And I I think that's the tension. I think that's where um, Where a lot of this um, is falling apart and we have as an industry, as a group of marketers, we have some work to do.
0: So what would you say are the best ways to create limbic sparks? Those moments when emotional motivation meets brand desire? You know, everyone has a
1: deep ocean of feelings somewhere deep in their soul that is making you like the things that you like and see the world the way that you see it. And so if if we do the hard and important work of understanding that layer of truth for our consumers and really understanding even the diversity of those emotional profiles, then and only then can we create those limbic sparks. The brands that do very, very well are not the brands that are selling, you know, the value proposition of their product or, or their service. They are the brands that are in that are eliciting this sort of irrational emotional response in a human being that makes you love the thing they're offering, even if you don't really know why. So we can recreate that level of affinity, that level of love, brand love, that level of, you know, I just don't know why, but I absolutely love this thing. That is the winning moment. And with those insights. And with understanding people at that level, then we can drive performance marketing campaigns that are gonna move the needle. Then we can create content that we're gonna put into programmatic media mixes and actually engage customers. You know, then we can be much more precise with our targeting and really know what messages are gonna work with what people and how we gotta pre- how do we have to present our value prop to different cohorts of people in our segment. We can't really, really, really do that without really understanding what's happening below the surface
0: for our customers. Wow, as a brand leader, what is it you know now that you wish you knew years ago, something that others can learn from?
1: Um, I would say it's the increasing importance of digital and technology in the business that we are in. I've been, I'm not gonna say how long, but I've been in this business for quite a while. And when I started out, a lot of marketing was mostly, you know, creative branding, et cetera. And so as the world has changed and as, you know, digital and the internet and technology has accelerated at speeds that we could never imagine, our business has changed dramatically as well. And it's not just the delivery channels of our messages, you know, like we're not doing, you know, we're doing less and less, print ads and broadcast TV and more online, et cetera. It's also the way that people behave and consume life um, is just changed and forever changed and will never again be what it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So what do I know today that I wish I knew then um, that this was coming and that we would be in this incredibly high paced State of continuous change, where uh, this discipline would need to be one of the most flexible of all of the disciplines, because we're trying to keep up with and in some ways be ahead of these unfathomable consumer behaviors and these new technologies and this additional disruption that hasn't yet happened yet. But we know that when it happens, as it continues to happen, we're going to have to keep reinventing. We're going to have to keep reinventing and we're going to have to reinvent again. And so the preparedness for that fluidity and the preparedness for that instability almost, I would like to call it excitement, Mm -hmm. but it's excitement that comes from instability is the one thing I wish I had, you know, identified maybe 15 years ago and steadied myself for as, as we... As we've gone along and I've ruined my career,
0: this has been an incredible conversation. EM, thank you so much for joining me today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks.
1: Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you for having me on. This was wonderful.
0: For more, go to limbicsparks.com.